Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. The desire for gold is the most universal and deeply rooted commercial instinct of the human race, is a quote by the renowned Wall Street stockbroker and investment banker Gerald M. Loeb. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. Someone managing one of the leading gold mining companies listed in Australia, which produced more than 500,000 ounces in 2022 alone. Our guest today is Perseus's Mining Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director, Jeff Quartermain, who oversees Perseus's major operations in Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire and Sudan. Early in his career, Jeff was a design engineer who moved into the mining industry as a general manager in Guinea Mining. After a brief tenure in corporate finance at ABN Ambro, Jeff returned to the mining industry and became Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer at Oregon Minerals, followed by Chief Financial Officer at Medivac Limited. Jeff was appointed Chief Financial Officer and Company Secretary at Lafayette Mining and became Chief Financial Officer and Company Secretary at Tri Osman before joining Perseus. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Ghana, Brazil and the Cote d'Ivoire, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Board and Executive Search Firm. In our discussion... Jeff reflects on his tenure at Perseus and the major milestones he has achieved. As a mining industry expert, Jeff shares his advice on running operations in Africa ethically through a social license with local communities, as well as navigating political risks and civil unrest. Jeff emphasizes the importance of cash flow rather than production targets, as well as leadership based on his experience and hiring ability. Jeff discusses his rise through the ranks in the mining industry the hardest aspects of his role at Perseus, their plans for the future, and some of the major challenges ahead. Lastly, Jeff touches on a range of interesting topics, including nuclear power in Australia, and major players such as China, Russia, the United States, and the Middle East jostling for influence and power in the African region. So sit back and enjoy sitting under the mango tree. Jeff, welcome to the show. Great. Well, thanks for having me here, Greg. Do you think mining is a good career to pursue these days? I think it is a good career to pursue. I think it's it's not without its challenges. There's a lot of opposition coming from all sorts of quarters, which I guess tends to cause young people who are looking to come into the industry to feel a little bit hesitant about it. But there's a lot of reward in it. I mean, it's a very, very satisfying occupation. It can be 
exercising your, your full professionalism at them, and you're doing quite a lot of good for, for your society, actually. Well, why aren't graduates believing that at the moment? Well, I, I'm not too sure, because I don't think they actually get to the graduate stage. I think they don't even get enrolled in the courses, is, is what I'm hearing. And I think that is a major problem. I heard last year, for instance, that only 18 people graduated in mining engineering in Australia right across the entire tertiary spectrum. Now, if that's the truth, as uh, as was, was stated at a conference I was at recently, then the industry is in for a rather difficult time in, in years to come because there is simply not the talent coming through. And the benefits of mining? I mean, obviously, we've got some reasonably tough times ahead uh, looking at the Australian economy and the, and the global economy. Mining's always come to the support for Australia. Well, certainly mining contributes a lot in an economic sense to the country. But, I mean, if you sort of step back and say, well, uh, you know, enter into the discussion around the transition from hydrocarbons to renewable energy and things of that nature. Now, you're not going to have renewable energy, electric vehicles and wind farms, unless you mine the raw materials that are needed to manufacture those things. So to say that you want to have that transition and not have mining is is a nonsense, to be frank. Okay, and if I look at my mobile phone, it's made up a lot of the metals, isn't it? Indeed, that's right. Okay. What is Perseus? What is Perseus? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, if we look at it on a factual basis, what it is today is a, is one of the leading gold mining companies listed in Australia. In fact, I think on last count, we're the fourth largest Australian listed company, about the 15th largest in the world. So we're, we're a company that is focusing on on African operations. We're, we're generating, making about half a million ounces of gold a year, and we're making a lot of earnings, a lot of profit. Pure gold only, Jeff, is that right? We have a little bit of silver, but it's mainly gold. So that's obviously, at this stage of the cycle, it's it's a it's a good uh, material to be in. You've got some challenges at the moment, Jeff. We have challenges every day, Greg. In fact, we have a bit of a saying in our place, you know, <laughs> never a dull moment. And I can assure you that's absolutely the truth. But as, you, as you're referring to there, I mean, in the last couple of weeks, it's been quite challenging given the comings and goings in Sudan, where we... Uh, we're looking to take a final investment decision on a, on large-scale development later this year. So what is the actual story, the genesis of the group? Well, Perseus started off in Perth as a junior exploration company. Okay. And in fact, I when I talk about Perseus, I refer to us as the accidental miner because the, the people that started Perseus had absolutely zero intention of creating a mining company. What they were seeking to do was to explore in a part of the world that was relatively underexplored, in other words, in West Africa, yep. find something and then sell that on to someone else to do the business. Now, what actually happened was that the cycles, the way they worked out, the price of the company when they made their discovery ramped up so rapidly that no one would buy it. And they were more or less forced to go into development and then into operation, totally right. ill-equipped to do it. And, and that was about the time that I came on board. So it is the accidental miner. And what we've done is we've taken this company, which was really not intended to be in the business, into what is today quite a sizable operation. Jeff, what's been the significant milestones that you look back on as the key turning points in this great growth and success story? Well, there's been a few along the way. I guess when I took over as CEO, which was in the beginning of 2013, the gold market was in a fairly steep decline and yeah. Perseus had just started operating and the challenges of building their mine and what have you were starting to come home. So the first challenge I had was to make sure that we didn't go out of business by the end of the year. And that was a very real prospect given the way that things were tracking. So we managed to sort a few things out along the way. And then it was a case of saying, well, look, this single mine 
single country exposure is a fairly dangerous way to live your life if you're on the African continent because, as you'd appreciate, countries have political cycles yeah. and, and overlain by, by commodity cycles. And if you happen to get a bad political cycle and a, and a down commodity cycle, you've got yourself some serious issues. So it came quite clear to me that what we really needed to do as soon as possible was to become a multi-mine, multi-jurisdictional operator where we could spread risk across a number of operations and across a number of geopolitical settings. Yes. So that was what we set about doing and after having got the first mine operating reasonably. Where was the first one at? The first one was uh, the Etikan mine in Ghana. Okay. And at that stage, it was quite interesting because people used to refer to Ghana as Africa for beginners. It was pretty easy, really, by okay. comparison. And next door, the the country of Cote d'Ivoire was a flaming wreck. They'd had a civil war. And, yeah. and I remember my first visit over there, walking out of the airport and seeing bullet holes and flame marks everywhere, thinking, well, what the hell have you done? This is crazy. But So it was a bit of a mess, but we pushed along with that one and ended up developing our second mine, which was in the north of Cote d'Ivoire. And it was quite small and a lot of people, against a lot of opposition from our shareholders. In fact, our shareholders said, you're mad investing in this, it's too small. But we had a lot of industrial logic in what we're doing. We needed to have diversity quickly into the portfolio. We needed a second income stream. And I was also very keen to to learn how to operate in Cote d'Ivoire, which is a former French colony, mm. very different to Ghana, learn how to operate at a small level without risking the entire company before we went on to the larger scale developments that we had in mind. Okay. We did that. And then also what we wanted to do was to, to demonstrate to the host communities and the host governments that we were a corporate partner that could be trusted and relied upon to do what we were going to do. Yeah. Uh, we did all of those things and, uh, and more, in fact. And when we came to license the next project in Cote d'Ivoire, the government knew that we were somebody that they wanted to do business with. So it made it a whole lot easier. Not only that, the money that we generated from that small operation actually paid for the next large development. And so it, it's more than served its purpose as something that started off that people weren't too thrilled about. It's turned into a, into a terrific operation, done its business, and given us the wherewithal to move on to bigger and better things, as it were. Hearts and minds? Mining's not just walking in and digging a hole, is it? It's absolutely not. In fact, that's the easiest part of the whole lot. I mean, quite definitely, I think, and this applies in every country you're operating in. Well, basically, there's, there's five things you need. You need decent assets for a start. You need money to be able to do your business. Yep. You need markets for your products. Yep. You need decent people who know what they're doing. And you need a social license to operate. Because without that, if one of those five ingredients is missing, you're going to struggle. Now, people say, oh, well, this only applies to Africa. It is absolutely not the case. In fact, the other day, somebody approached me about investing in a property or an opportunity in Western Australia. And I had a look at the data. And what I noticed was that this deposit was smack dab in the middle of a beautiful farming district. Yeah, right. And I asked the guy, well, so how's your social license to operate? Yeah. He said, oh, funny you should mention that. Yes, the farmers aren't that happy. Well, I know that's exactly right. I mean, competition for land use is huge. Competition for water is huge. Concern around tailings and things like that in that sort of environment is huge. So if you don't have a social license to operate, it doesn't matter whether it's Western Australia or Western Queensland or New South Wales or the middle of Africa, you have nothing really. And so that is something that we've put a huge amount of emphasis on from day one. In fact, we've been quite intrigued by the emergence of the debate around ESG yeah, okay. because we've always been doing that. That's been a key part of our business right from the very beginning because we knew full well 
that if, if our host communities weren't happy with us operating in their midst, either because we were damaging the environment or not offering employment or not treating people well or not recognising the sanctity of their land and customs, etc., we weren't going to be there for very long. So social licence to operate, absolutely important, part of the whole ESG d discussion and debate, and it's something that we do. It's part of our DNA, basically. One's pretty blokey. Jeff, has the culture of mines or mining changed? Oh, look, I think that the culture of mining has changed along with society. Society's changed right across the board. So I think what was uh, given way of behaviour in the past isn't the way that people behave today outside of a mine or inside of the mine, come to that. But is there quotas now or what's the story? Oh, well, I think the quotas is an interesting piece. I can understand and I absolutely understand why the argument for having quotas, I've heard a lot of women say that without quotas, a lot of companies would not be motivated to employ women. And I think that in some circumstances, that is probably correct. But I would think that in our situation, we value talent very, very highly. And we don't care whether a person is a man or a woman, whether they're Muslim or a Christian or whatever. We, we probably have one of the most diverse organisations you could possibly come across. And to have imposed, you must have this particular element of diversity take precedence over everything else doesn't seem right to me. I don't think gender should be given precedence over any of the other diversity characteristics. So to say I don't support it isn't quite right. I understand it, but I think what we do is, is we employ on merit. And we've got a lot of women actually in our, our ranks, not, not numerically, because frankly in Africa, it's a very different cultural sort of setting, but we do have quite a number of women in, in quite senior uh, technical roles, women who have been through the universities. And when I talk to them about gender quotas and things like that, they get pretty angry, I must admit, because they believe that, in a sense, it's devaluing their currency. They've been appointed to these roles because they're damn good at what they do. And they don't like the idea of somebody getting a job first up because they're a woman, as opposed to anything else or in preference to anything else. So I think the whole issue around gender and diversity is something that needs to be intelligently interpreted. You know, as I said, our organisation is immensely diverse and I think we're much better for that experience, to be frank. Super funds, they're supporting you? Oh, yes. I mean, the, the, it is interesting in Australia with the superannuation funds. I mean, I do think that a number of the funds have politicised themselves and are taking very selective positions on things. And I think that's regrettable. I've got to say that much because I'm not sure that their members would necessarily be wanting their money deployed to further a political cause as opposed to making their future better. So I think there is a bit of recalibration that needs to happen. I think we were chatting earlier on, I was telling you about getting some letters from superannuation funds in North America, where their criteria for investment is that if you have anything to do with Sudan, then they can't invest in you. To me, I think that's an absurd proposition, to be frank. And I understand where that came from. That came from when Sudan was on the terror blacklist five or six years ago. But for me to receive a letter from a, one of these funds now to say, within 90 days, you must give me a plan for divesting of your interests in Sudan is a complete nonsense proposition. And I think in that instance, what I'd be inclined to do would be to invite that fund to perhaps sell their shares in Perseus and use the funds to educate themselves on what the world's really like. Jeff, maybe share some stories. So when you, get, when you fly in and fly out of these countries, 
Don't you go ahead and meet the Chiefs? Is that is that true? I think you've mentioned that once or twice before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, when I go over there quite regularly, and part of what I do is to go around the operations and talk to our people. But another part of what I do is go and sit with our, our key stakeholders yep. in, in the country. Now, our, our stakeholders comprise host communities. So, yes, you're quite right, going and sitting under a mango tree with a chief and having a, an exchange, uh, talking to our governments, talking to our suppliers and our people, because most of our procurement is done locally. Nearly all of our employees are local people. And so being a, a part of an, and understanding some of the nuances that exist in the countries is super important. And when I say some, I, I mean some because one thing that we've come to learn is that there's an awful lot that we don't know and we will never know. And so being aware of your shortcomings, being aware of the fact that you don't know everything is terribly, terribly important. And, and it helps you to be able to sit and listen and seek guidance in the right places and, and be able to operate your business in a way that is the, the local people are comfortable with what you're doing. They recognize as a benefit for them, et cetera, et cetera. How long does it take to build trust? And how do you build trust? Well, it's a funny thing. It takes quite a long time. I, just if I could divert onto a small story, I, I recall... Um, in Cote d'Ivoire, the first time I went there, I went to see the, the Minister for Mines and he said to me, look, uh, what do you want? And I said, oh, I'm just coming to meet you and to pay my respects to you and, and to meet you. And he said, well, he said, foreigners don't do that. What do you really want? Oh, yeah, and I right. said to him, no, 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 quite seriously, I just want to, I want to introduce myself and tell you a little bit about what we do and to meet you. And one of these days, we may do some further business. So I, I made a habit of doing that. I went back three or four times with that in mind. And then eventually we were looking for a mining license to be granted. And so the conversation morphed into that very, very, very readily. We had established a level of trust just through sitting and talking and exchanging ideas. So what's the difference what they're looking for to maybe what other Westerners might be looking for? Oh, well, look, I think, I think that quite often what has happened in the past, there's suspicion around colonial overtones yeah. and things like yeah, that. Exactly. So, so they're expecting foreigners to come in and, and want... And do the wrong thing by them. And, yeah, I think that's where they start from. And then they find out that actually not everybody's like that. And for the benefit for the locals, you want to talk us through... Oh, well, you know, for those who aren't you know, necessarily a fae with what the benefits of what mining does to these countries... Well, if we look around around our, our operations, I mean, the benefits that flow into that local community are really quite large, actually. And and they start with simple things like employment and, and the like. But as part of that employment, we do a lot of training with our people and we equip them with skills and knowledge that can be used either with us or taken somewhere else. And it can most certainly be used when we've left. So I think the education piece is is immense. But it's not only the education of, of our workforce. What we do is we invest in, in the school systems over there. So we build infrastructure and things like that, give scholarships to people to go and learn uh, either trades or, or university or whatever the case happens to be. So that's, a, that's an important piece of what we do. I mean, we also offer medical assistance and things like that. And we, we do a certain amount ourselves. But what we also do is we put a part of our revenue into a into a trust fund which is administered locally to build infrastructure that the people themselves say this is what we need and also into industry as it were which will be sustainable beyond our, our presence in their midst so they're just a few things that that happen and and i think that it's pretty clear to see when you when you visit around the areas where we've been i mean there is some pretty good infrastructure there's employment people are happy and we do make quite a positive difference and this is relevant in particularly in a place like northern Cote d'Ivoire, where it's well known that 
there's been a drift of radical Islam in sub-Saharan Africa yep. through Mali and Burkina Faso in particular now. So the likes of the ISIS coming down? That's right, ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda and the like. Now, one of their methods of recruitment, of course, is to go to, to villages and, and find disenfranchised youth. So people who are unemployed, don't have any money, don't have any sense of self-worth or prestige and, and then give them a gun and a slogan and away they go. Now, we also operate in that same sphere, except we employ people. We give them skills, we give them money, we give them prestige, we give them a future. So if you stack that up against the alternatives, actually working in a mining industry is quite an attractive thing to do. That's only one part of the expansion now. You've got, you've got another challenging area. Yeah, well, we were operating in the two countries, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, but we've recently stepped out into Sudan and bought a company in a large deposit right in the north of Sudan, about 75 kilometres under the border with Egypt, in fact. And I think as, as people listening to this program would be well aware that the last couple of weeks in Sudan have been challenging. And we've certainly been working working our way through all that and be pausing and reflecting uh, when it comes to deciding whether we invest fully or, or the like. What goes through a ex mind? Now, the only reason I say that, your job's tough enough as it is in mining. People go to work, most of them go home. Sometime in the mining, people don't go home. Over the top of that, now you've got a role, you're in a country which is in the midst of you know some, some turmoil, some violent turmoil. Well, the first thing that came into the mind was the safety of all of our people, basically. That is paramount above all else. I mean, we can lose assets and things like that, but we, we cannot lose life. That's simply not a proposition. So as soon as we became aware of the troubles down in Khartoum, we, we certainly set about doing what we could do. It was quite challenging for our Sudanese staff who actually live in Khartoum itself. They were finding it very difficult to move, but we made sure that they were safe in their homes for the time being, at least, and, and the like. And I'm happy to say that since this all started, quite a lot of them have managed to, to move back to their home villages or away from the trouble areas, which is, uh, which is something. And, and we have felt rather helpless, in fact, to be able to help them in a physical way. But one of the things that we did do was to make sure we stayed in touch with them every day and gave them some moral support. And that gave them the message that someone was there for them and would be there for them going forward. So that was something. But as far as our, our people up on our side is concerned, we looked at the situation there. Um, nobody was in immediate danger, but clearly people who are working away from home for extended periods of time, their families are, are anxious and they get anxious. So anybody who wanted to leave um, the place we managed to get them out of the country before all the exodus to the borders happened. And we had a, a group of people who were very adamant that they did not want to leave. Well, that's okay to be brave like that, but at times the, the CEO does have to step in and say, well, no, this is what's going to happen, folks. And we have moved those people away from harm's way as well. If you were to look at the landscape of mining in Australia and the ability for miners to do well in Australia... What sort of advice or thoughts would you pass on to state and federal governments to make it a little bit easier or a bit more worthwhile? Well, that's a, that's a very challenging question, and each place is somewhat different. I, I, I think the thing that I would like to see is that the ability for, for mining to be encouraged in the first instance, and then for the benefits of, of mining to be able to be fairly and equitably distributed to all of the stakeholders. The way that legislation is established and, and the way that governments operate, quite often they'll, they'll lean to where the pressure's coming from and the like, and they'll favour one group over another. And I think that at times the, the distribution of the benefits isn't, isn't fair or equitable. 
I know uh, that that certainly applies in some of the African countries. I think investors need to have the opportunity to be able to recover their money at the very least. And I think they need to have the opportunity to, to, to distribute benefits in, in the way that is going to be good for the country as well. So, yeah, I think it, look, it's a fairly vexed area at the moment because there is a very strong lobby against mining, as we were mm. saying right at the outset of the conversation. Yeah. And getting that right is, is not that easy. Well, maybe, Jeff, could you sort of share a little bit about, you talk about your assets. When you've got to find the asset and you've got to make sure that asset is worthwhile, then you've got to take the risk. And then you've got, you've got to raise capital through the process. There's some pretty big bets miners play. Yeah, look, there are there are risks taken all along. They're calculated risks. I mean, right at the very basis of the thing. I mean, if you actually look at how does a an ore reserve or a resource get calculated, that is a guess in a sense. You drill holes and you estimate what is between those holes and you make a lot of assumptions. Now, there's a lot of very bright people and a lot of equipment available to make allow you to be able to make good guesses, as it were, but it is a guess and, and you don't really know until you actually process it whether your estimate has been accurate or not. So that is the case. But as you go forward, yes, there's a lot of calculated risk. But I mean, the thing is that having been in the business for a long time, you, you can kind of have a feel for, for what may or may not work. And then as an investor, you want to have the risk return ratio stacked fairly well in your in your favour. So if you look at our decision to to invest in Sudan, we had three groups of shareholders, actually, sort of, when we when we made that investment decision. The first group sort of said to me, well, where, where the hell's Sudan? And uh, show me on the map. Okay. And then the second group of people were people who had actually been in the business or who were geologists who understood the geological rationale for what we're doing. And they were saying, well, this is fantastic. This is amazing that this, this deposit has never been mined or developed in the past. This is fantastic. You've really you know, done a, done a great thing. The third group of people were people who were going, well, what the heck have you done? You know, do you realise what has happened in this part of the world over the last 50 years? And as I said to that group of people, well, look, yes, we, we certainly realise that there's been challenge over time, but we also recognise the enormous mineral wealth of that region. Mm. We're putting at risk about 9.5% of our company. Is that right? That was what it cost us to get into the thing. And as a result yeah, for right. that... We doubled our ore reserve inventory immediately. We got a 15-year life project. We got an investment in a, another project in Cote d'Ivoire. But also what we got was first mover advantage into one of the most uh, prolific mineral provinces, un unexplored mineral provinces in the world. Now, when I look at that, for nine and a bit percent of the company, the odds were definitely in our favour. Okay. And I still believe to this day that is the case now. We have had a slight setback in the last couple of weeks, but that's not the end of the story by any stretch of the imagination. That's a slight detour. The other risk, the political risk that you saw when you took it on, what, what was in your back of your mind there? Uh, obviously, you necessarily can't predict. There, or do, do you have any inkling there was some potential for some, some uprising or not? Our opinion at that stage of the game was that the country was very much on a positive trajectory from a very low base. Yeah, okay. They'd had a fairly dark history, and they had come out of that history in 2019 with the overthrow of a dictator who'd been in power for 30 years. And they were heading towards democratic government, and I still believe that is where they're heading. What we always said was that it won't happen in a straight line. It never does. It never does. Yeah. You might go forward a few steps and sideways and backwards and the like, and, and that's what's happened here. And, and this current, when we look back on the events of the last couple of weeks, you might say, oh, well, look, it was inevitable that those, the two generals of the, the, the warring parties were going to come to, come to 
flows right. at some particular point yeah. in time. And, and, and unarguably, you could say, yeah, well, that's probably right. But from our perspective, I'm fortunate and I'm glad that it's happened now and not while we're halfway through the build. And I think actually when things do sort themselves out, and I'm confident they will, I think the place will be better for it and, and we'll be moving forward. But there are a lot of people, a lot of outside players involved over in that part of the world and they've got a fair bit of influence. And, and, and you know, even though the people want might want peace and stability and, and, and governance, what other people want and the money that they deploy to get what they want, I think quite often rules the day. And that's the sad part of, of a lot of these countries. Are the Russians in there pretty heavily? Oh, I believe that uh, that Wagner does have activities in the country. Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah. But then so do a lot of other people too, I might add. I mean, there's certainly um, other people have got very keen interests. And as somebody described it to me when we first started looking at it, they said, look, it's like a pile of sticks leaning up against each other. So long as they keep leaning, everything's fine. But if you start pulling a few of them out, then they might, they might all collapse. And I think that there's something in that description as well. But no, there's, look, if you, if you look at the country where it's located, it's at the crossroads of the Arab world and the African world. Yeah. And the thing to remember is that Africa is packed to the gunnels with mineral wealth, and particularly the sorts of minerals that are needed for the transformation to renewables and things of that nature. I'll ask you a bit more about that in a second. Crit- yeah, okay. Crit- critical minerals. And so there is a very large competition going on right now between Europeans, Americans, Russians, Chinese, and Arabs to see who's going to actually have a, have a dominant role there. Now, the, what they're all forgetting, though, is that the Africans, the owners of these assets, have got something to say about this as well. And they're sort of saying, well, hang on a minute, you guys can can covet these things, but if you want them, you're going to pay for them. And so there is a quite a shift in the balance of power, I think, in the whole region. And that's something that how that's going to play out over time is not clear at this particular point, but there's a lot of people with a lot of vested interests. Well, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that well, the Chinese have been playing the long game and the smart game for some time? You talk Wagner, but the Russians are Wagner definitely in there. We all know that. Mm. The Russians are coming in as well. There's certainly a change in thinking in that part of the world. Well, I think I think there's a lot of people who are active. I mean, if you if you talk to the to the people from Saudi and and oh yeah yeah, yep. I was at the Future Mining Forum earlier this year. I mean. What they have said is that they've recognised that their position in the world, courtesy of the hydrocarbons business, is on the wane in the sense that supplies will dwindle in due course, but also people are moving away from oil and gas, as it were, to other things. And to maintain their position in the world, they need alternative industries. And they've said about uh, tourism is one thing, you know, and with the Soccer World Cup and all this sort of yeah. business, Manchester United to become the feeder club for Rehad United in due course by the sound of things. But... Uh, um, but the, the other thing that they're looking at very carefully is that mining, and they're saying, well, look, we, we would like to create uh, Saudi as a hub of mining in our region, and our region, according to them, includes all of Africa and Central Asia. So the thing is that if they can control the supply line of the critical minerals that are needed for energy transition, then their position in the world is assured. So you can kind of see where the logic is heading here and, and why different people have the interests they do. And as I say, there's a lot of lot of different thoughts around it. There's a lot of money at play and how it will all work out at the end of the day remains to be seen very much. Okay, so they want to look after the supply line. The Chinese are already ahead on the production, aren't they? Like about 10, 15 well, in, years? In, in some things, yeah. And I think the Chinese and the Saudis are getting along famously at, at the moment they as are. well. Yeah. So, Mer- Americans are worried by that. Yep. And trying to play catch up in the critical mineral space. 
Yeah, the Americans are preoccupied on several fronts right now, you yeah. know, not the least of which is at home. Yeah. So, yeah, they've got, they've got a few challenges. Okay, so if we roll that out, bearing in mind where the world is going in critical minerals or rare earths as well, what's the Australian government doing for our backyard? Are we incentivising and supporting enough? Well, I think they are. I think it is in a sense. I mean, certainly there's a, a massive mineral wealth here in this country and yeah. um, it's not taxed as heavily as, as in other parts of the world. One of the things we were talking about education and the like, education's the one area that is lagging behind at the moment here. Yep. And we can see it in the gold business in Australia. The cost structures of Australian miners has been under pressure over the last couple of years. And a key part of that has been labour and professional expertise. So, look, there's a number of areas that could use a bit of help along the way, I suspect. But at the end of the day, it's also up to the companies to do their thing too. We can't sit by and expect governments to do things for us. It's up to us to get on and do to do what we need to do and to make our own luck, as it were, by, by taking the initiatives, taking the risks that you referred to and, and going and doing things. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Jeff Quartermain. On our next episode, I sit down with Jack Yance, chairman and co-founder of Chemist Warehouse. You've got to think what the customer wants because I know for sure if, if I bought everything I liked, we wouldn't sell any. I say to my buyers, if my buyer says to me, I like this, I say, if you say that again, I'm going to fire you. I don't want you to buy what you like. I want you to buy what the customer likes. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. Background. Where'd you grow up? Well, I, I grew up in far north Queensland, actually. I was born in Tully, which not, oh, yeah. very, not very many people would know where Tully is. Yeah, a bit of rain there. Tully, a bit of rain there, yeah, absolutely. Twice <laughs> in the country, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think it was. It might, might have been overtaken by Babinda. I think that's a... That's what they say. They don't want to be the wettest in, in the place. But, but no, I grew up in far north Queensland and, and my dad was involved in the Commonwealth Bank and we used to move around every three or four years to different towns up there. So I did spend a bit of time up there as a kid. And then uh, university, you became an engineer? Yes, I went down to Brisbane to uh, the university there, University of Queensland. I went to boarding school first and then to, to uni and did, did engineering and then got into the engineering business for quite a few years. So, yeah. Yeah, but you didn't pursue it all the way through. You started as an engineer, moved into finance. Well, I did actually. I worked for about eight years, I think, as an engineer, as a structural engineer, and then slowly sort of morphed myself onto the dark side of things, as they said to me. I remember having a conversation with the head of our business who said to me, you turn your back on the profession, Jeff, you'll never come back. You'll never be allowed back. But I thought it seemed like a pretty good idea at the time and, and went on and did what I did, and I, I've, I've no regrets at all. Why did you go down that path? Down the path of, of moving of, away from it? Yeah. Oh, look, I, I had a, I guess I had a bit of an affinity for finance, as it were. I got very, very interested in some of the financial aspects of the jobs that we were building. And we were building, actually, the Dalrymple Bay Coal Terminal up in near Mackay. And I got to know a number of finance people out of the coal companies who were funding that exercise. And I thought that was kind of very interesting. And then went off and did an MBA uh, in Sydney here. And I had my eyes opened even further by the people that I was doing that course with. And I guess the, the rest, as they say, is history. It did open your mind up a bit, did it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, no question about that. I mean, I, I often say that the greatest benefit I got from that course wasn't from necessarily from the coursework. It was from talking to people in the course and just learning about what the world was about, because I'd led, led a fairly sheltered existence up to that time. And so, no, that was enormous in terms of, of, I guess, showing me that all sorts of things were possible. At the time, I was actually working with a fellow here in Sydney, and he was instrumental in that too, because he was one of these fellows who had absolute 
self-belief. It's quite funny. We had an office in North Sydney just to, to highlight the point. We'd, we'd go to a meeting in the city and I'd say to him, we ought to get going. He'd go, it's okay. I'll drive in and I'll get a park in front. And he invariably used to do that. It was like this power of positive thinking, but that was kind of just a side thing. But I mean, he did encourage me to to believe in myself and to back my abilities and things like that. And I think that was terribly, terribly important to be able to feel that, yep, you could actually mix it with, with the best as it were. So what were you learning about leadership in those days? It's interesting because I don't know that I was conscious of what I was learning necessarily. I was yeah, okay. picking up an awful lot. I mean, we, we did parts of our course around that, but I think I've learned mostly what I've learned about leadership over time from the people that I've worked with. And then, of course, I say one of the truly informative periods in terms of leadership was when I used to coach rugby in the junior ranks and I needed to be able to get three teams of people and their parents all pointing in the one direction. And I had no authority whatsoever other than sort of moral authority, as it were. And of course, young kids, they're as honest as the day is long, and they'll tell you the way it is pretty quickly. They don't tolerate bullshit, as it <laughs> So I, I really had to learn how to, how to lead, how to get people to understand what their mission was, how to buy into it, how to trust each other. And this is on a football field. Mm-hmm. Now you go and look at, at the workplace, and all of those things are needed as well. The teamwork, the integrity, the commitment and the achievement. And interestingly enough, those are the four things that are the core values of Perseus Mining. Taking those core values into our business and we live by those things. And and I think that that's really, really important. And I think that my learning in that particular exercise has certainly influenced the way that I lead this the business now. So how do you lead a uh, multi-jurisdiction? Well, I guess the same as any kind of thing, but I mean, every one, yeah, well, one but, thing, it, but it's not the same. No, no, it's not exactly the same. But I mean, one thing you really do need to realise is that at the core of it, people are people, but there are very strong cultural overlays and things of that nature. And so, you really do need to to try to understand the nuances and what it is that motivates them, what it is that interests them, and tap into those those sorts of things. Yes, you had a time at Elders there for for a little bit during the career. Yes, I did. I did. I was very fortunate to have that experience. I have to say. That was during the Tasian days? Yes, yes, yes. I was uh, I was part of the Elders Resources Group, which was a, a subsidiary of Elders IXL and uh, worked under uh, Jeff Lord in the resources sector. And did you learn some skills after some post-acquisition experience? Oh, absolutely. Look, I, as I say, I was privileged to have the opportunity to work with that group because there was a lot of very, very, very talented people and they took risks and they did things. But what I did notice was that they had this preoccupation with financial engineering and not so much on the operating side of the business. So they were very good at acquiring things, but they weren't very good at bringing the back office along with the front office, so to speak. Yeah, okay. And and I did witness the fact that the business imploded as a result of that. Yeah. And it's been something that, that was a lesson that was indelibly imprinted on my mind. And as we go and acquire businesses now, the integration of the business is a key part. In fact, what we have sought to do is, in fact, to get our business ahead of the curve by advancing it to the stage where when we do acquisitions, everything slots in quite comfortably rather than having to play catch-up because that catch-up is the hardest game that you can possibly play, I think. Well, what's the stats on uh, mergers and acquisitions and the actual uh, outcome on the integration process? It's pretty low, isn't it, in terms of uh, value creation? Oh, I think that's probably true on an industry basis. Yeah. I think actually in our case, it's, it's, it's been pretty good. And I think the reason on the industry basis is I think people pay too much for, for assets that aren't worth it, is, is my core belief. 
Well, I've been sold too much, have they? Well, look, I think a lot of people don't make up their own minds about things, you know, that they're driven by shareholders' opinions yep. and by investment bankers and by media and things like that. And need to be seen to be doing something? They need to be seen to doing something. So, and it's very, very, very easy to, to fall into that trap. I mean, the hardest thing in the world is to say no. And I think there's a few... There's a few investment bankers around town here, and I can think of one fellow who's quite prominent who has been, is on the record of saying that some of the best deals that he's done are the ones he didn't do. And in fact, I think I could say the same thing. Some of the deals that we didn't do, we went up to the line, we stepped back, were probably some of the better decisions in a way. It is very difficult to, to get M&A right um, and to get all of the stars aligned at the time you want them aligned. In preparation to become a CEO, looking at your career, You've also changed sectors, Jeff. So you had mining exposure and substantially mining exposure, but you've also been in management consultancies. You've worked in financial services. Think that's been a plus? Oh, there's no doubt it's a plus. I have to say, though, that all of those things were not done ever with the aim of me becoming a CEO. I mean, that wasn't, was not never part of the plan, particularly. Well, what, was there a plan? No, no, it wasn't, actually. No, not really, I, I've got to say. So, no, it wasn't. I mean, I didn't set, set out when I was 18 and say, if I do X, Y, Z, then I'm going to end up here and there. I mean, it, it, things came along, and I guess you play what's in front of you, and you take the opportunities as they come. But when I did get the opportunity to take over the company, a lot of the things that I'd learnt previously did come into play. And that's what I was saying earlier on. I didn't really recognise at the time what I was learning, but I was learning an awful lot because I was watching and listening and talking to people. And having had a lot of experiences, I then was able to bring that to the table in, in what we're doing now in terms of being able to deal through difficult situations or deal with people or whatever the case is. Or teams, etc. as well. Yeah, yeah. But you also took a year out, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually. I was working for a company and we um, we got taken over and rather than rush back to the fray, I, I did take a bit of time and 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 I've said to people that was the best time of my life in the sense that I spent it with my children. They were at, at an age where they had benefited from having me about, I'd like to think. And we did spend a lot of absolute good quality time together and then when they were ready to go, I, I was ready to go as well into back into the business. So yeah, I think having having had a bit of time on the sideline, as it were, or not in the sideline exactly, but in a less intense kind of a role, I was able to invest in, in my family, and, and I think that's the best investment you can make. Okay. Now, you're at Perseus in the finance function before you move into the CEO role. Okay, so everybody knows you, so you're going to have to make some changes, I, I guess, fairly, fairly swiftly. Did everyone buy the potential that you were presenting? Well, look, it was a, it was an interesting situation. I, as I said, I never had an inkling that they were wanting me to to take on this role. But I went over there as the CFO, and I went over to to Perth in the expectation that we'd build the company up and someone would take us over, and that'd be the end of the story. So I wasn't really thinking that far ahead. But when I did take over, I mean, the fellow who had Mark Caldwell, who who'd led the company prior to to me, Mark was a, a geologist and a business promoter per se. That was where he had very, very strong uh, abilities, more so than in actually running a business. So, okay. so when I got involved in the thing, and I was some sort of, from my engineering background, I suppose, as much as anything I'm in finance, I could see that there were a lot of things that needed to change in order to be able to, to turn ourselves into a proper business. So I did have to make a, a number of changes, and in, it wasn't that easy. I mean, Mark was still around the place, and I felt... It's a funny thing, and it's, it's people say to me, what are you going to do when you retire? Well, I know one thing I am going to do, and that is I'm not going to 
be a part of Perseus. I'm going to give whoever comes to run the business a clean shot at it because I think there's nothing worse than having previous management somehow involved in the board or whatever it is second-guessing along the way. So in my case, I don't think Mark was doing that deliberately. He stayed around for a while at the behest of the shareholders as much as anything. Yeah, right. but, it, but it did make it kind of awkward to make the changes that you needed to make, and then some of them needed to be made quite quickly, but they did actually occur over a number of years. But eventually we got there and uh, have turned the team into a, into an outstanding team. And in fact, if, if I had to look back on the last 10 years and say, you know, what are you, what are you most proud of out of Perseus, it would be the fact that we've built up an outstanding team of people and we've built a culture that is based on some very clearly defined uh, core values. And that's how we live and how we operate. And all of the people that are, we have uh, have bought into this situation. And I'd, I'd like to think that People enjoy working for us. They enjoy the achievement of getting stuff done. A core value is we do what we say we're going to do, and we do. Where do they all come from, Jeff? Is that uh, was there a, a team gathering one night, or was it was it you sitting putting pen to paper at two o'clock in the morning? Where did it all come from? I guess it just evolved over a period of time, and we have had the odd sort of sit down and have a discussion around things and and uh, what have you. But I think it's also comes through the recruitment of people. You tend to bring people in who. Who share the share the values, as it were, and things like that. So that wasn't that difficult, in that sense. And look, you make some mistakes too. I mean, I don't think we've ever lost anyone that we really wanted to keep. But you do make the odd employment. Uh, you know, you know the business yeah. recruitment. It's not a hundred percent guarantee in any case. But no, I think we've been reasonably successful in bringing together a really good group of people. And just as recently as yesterday, in fact, on the back of this sedan scenario, I, I got some feedback from people who saw our team in, in action and they said they have never witnessed a more professional group of people in Africa anywhere. So that was a very nice piece of feedback to be able to pass back to the team last night and say to them, look, you're doing the right thing, guys, and people recognise what you're contributing. Hey, if I take it back all the beginning, when you came CEO, just a quick one here, you're the CFO, you're an engineer by background, you've been out of that for a bit, you've gone to the dark side. You've now been asked to consider this role. Did you get much in the way of doubting Thomas is saying, no, 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 I'm not. I'm uncomfortable with a CFO becoming a CEO in this game? No, I didn't really. That's you surprising. Know. Yeah, well, it probably is. So mind you, we were so small in those days that I don't think anyone really, really cared too much, to be perfectly frank. But I think people do tend to think that technically orientated people tend to go towards the, the leadership roles and things rather than financial people. But I don't think that's an exclusive thing. I think so much of what you're doing is about dealing with people and having clarity of vision and things of that nature. And I mean, anybody can have those attributes. It doesn't matter the training. I mean, lawyers, for instance, have a very good logical set of thought processes that can be helpful provided they don't go too far in the legal kind of, kind of scenario. Same thing with accountants and engineers. Building up a set of thinking skills, I think, is terribly, terribly important. And people skills and being able to listen to people and make judgments, make decisions and things like that. Being able to make a decision is pretty unimportant. Hardest part of the job? It's one of the more difficult things, I mean, because you, you're never working with perfect facts. You know, you're always got, there's always a bit of, uh, a bit of uncertainty. And having the courage to make a decision, you know, knowing full well that you might actually get it wrong. But you've considered everything and you back your judgment and you live with the consequences. And I think not everybody is willing to do that, of course. But I think if you are able to do it and if you are willing to take calculated risk, as it were, 
sensible risk, then that that's an important piece. What's your process when you go through those big ones? Do you seek counsel or do you sit by yourself or how do you go about it? <laughs> uh, probably all of the above. You talk to people and, I mean, it is very handy to have, have people to bounce thoughts off because you can get very myopic at times if you get down in the, in the weeds too far. So we try to do that. I mean, my chairman of the company, Sean Harvey, he, he lives in Toronto, so he's not immediately accessible, but we have conversations from time to time. And, and the fact that he's not in the weeds, I think, is quite helpful in that regard. But, you know, I've got a few friends as well that we can have those sorts of conversations. So the focus isn't on production targets? It's on cash flow? Well, we would say that cash is more important than... Well, put it this way, you can't get cash unless you produce in the first place, so that's a given. But if you were to say, well, what does Percy's want to do? Well, we don't necessarily say we want to be a million-ounce producer. We say we want to be a very profitable producer or we want to generate a lot of cash. So we actually do, you know, we have our production targets, but we also have our cash margin targets as well, and we live by those targets. And in this current environment, of course, where you're getting very decent prices as well, Mm. you're making a lot of money by, by taking that approach. It's very easy as you, as you get larger, people start to believe their own stories and cost control and discipline can disappear quite quickly. But we've actually kept a pretty close lid on things and then that's certainly benefited the profitability of the business and, and been outstandingly good for shareholders. And the creation of wealth for the shareholders and stakeholders, that's a real strong part of your mantra, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's our mission is our mission is to generate benefits in fair and equitable proportions for all stakeholders. And the fair and equitable proportions is the is the key part. Yeah. I've had some interesting conversations with some very senior officials in in, in Africa who sometimes you need to explain things in simple terms. And it's like, well, look, okay, just imagine what we're doing here's a cake. And we all want a piece of that cake, except that you want a larger piece than what I'm giving you. So who are you going to take it from? Are you going to take it from the community or are you going to take it from the employees or the suppliers of goods and services or are you going to take it from our shareholders? Because I'll tell you what, if you take it from our shareholders, we're not going to give you the money to do the deal. So let's just decide how we're going to split this pie. And that simplistic kind of approach is is actually fairly realistic. We will generate benefits, but they have to be distributed fairly. Everybody has to get what their due is. And if you work on that, then I think you can all live harmoniously. The big question is, well, what is fair and equitable? Everyone's got a different opinion around that one, of course. But all of those people and the shareholders have got to get their money and the government and the communities and the employees and the suppliers of goods and services all have to get something. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Outside of the current conflict, next five years, what's the greatest challenges ahead then? If this is a short-term conflict and it's overcome, what, what are the challenges you see? Oh, we've worked pretty hard to put the business where it is now. And what we have to do is to cement our position in the world, as it were. And that means to be able to present ourselves as a, a very reliable, consistent performer that's going to deliver continuously on what we do. So what it means in our business, which where you, you've got diminishing resources every day, you mine your material, that's less than what you had yesterday. Yeah. So you have to think ahead quite a few steps as to how am I going to replace that or increase that, uh, that, that reserve inventory. And so they're the things that we're working on fairly well at the moment in terms of being able to be able to say to investors, look, if you invest in this company, it's a well-managed business, but it's going to be around for a very long time when other people aren't perhaps. And then to be able to show that you've got the wherewithal to deliver on that, on that promise. Now, the current thing is, is, a, is a setback, but what it is, it's, we were always going to project beyond the Sudanese project. That was only just the next step. But also, wouldn't you have anticipated, Jeff, once you go into the African continent, 
Somewhere along the line, you're going to have one or two setbacks, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. There's no, no, there's no drama about that. I mean, yeah. of course, you're going to have setbacks along the way. And this is exactly the thing, is that while we were bringing this, the Sudanese project up to the starting line, we were looking at other opportunities. And what we will do is just simply change the order of things. Yeah. So it's nothing to be concerned about from anyone's perspective, other than mine, to get all those ducks in a row. But we were always going to be continuing to grow the business. And it's just a question of well, what order are you going to do it in? And where are those opportunities coming from? And is the gold market going to diminish in the next 10, 20 years? Is it always going to be the, the cornerstone that all valuation comes from? Well, that's a very good question, and I can't possibly answer that. I mean, last year, people were saying, the cryptocurrency guys yeah. were saying that gold's finished, it's all over. Mind you, crypto had a bit of a stumble, didn't it? And a lot of people went to gold. So I'm not sure. I mean, we just work on the basis that it will be. We control the things we can control. We can control production. We can control costs. We can't control gold prices and what people think about it. And so we do the things we can control. Okay. So I got a long day today and maybe I've worked three or four hours over normal time. You may have a fatality. Totally different to everybody else out there in corporate Australia. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is true. And fatalities are, are things that it's the worst case scenario all around. Yeah. But it, it sort of highlights the difference, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The work. But it's, yes. I mean, but, but safety, fatality is the end of the line. Safety is is the difference. And we've actually implemented a program right across our business called the Shed Program, Safely Home Every Day. And we say to every single person, and we train and we hammer this message in, you come to work, you must go safely home every day. And we're working that through at the present time. Now, that involves our African friends, their safety culture away from the mine site is completely different to what happens on the mine site. So they look after themselves on the site, but then they ride their motorbike home and they, they do crazy stuff. And we want to try and help them in that part of their life as well so that they do actually get home. They don't have an, an accident on the way. Uh, so, you know, like making sure that people don't get injured, people don't get seriously hurt and certainly don't get killed, that is something that drives a, a lot of what we do. And, uh, you know, I have to say we did have a fatality in June last year and that was uh, that was pretty tough, I've got to say, but hopefully that uh, that won't happen again, but you never know. What do you look for in people when you hire them, Jeff? Well, I, I mentioned the core values. Yeah. Before. Those sort of things are pretty important. People who can work as part of the team, people who have a high level of integrity, people who are very committed to the task and really focused on delivering outcomes. All of those things are super important. Yeah, but aren't they what I, I see down the road in another mining outfit or a bank? What was it different at your place? Well... Why is it different? Well, it's, it's not different, but we live that stuff. We don't just talk about it. That's what's different. And how do you reinforce it then? Well, we talk to people. We deliver by example. We walk the talk. Okay. Regards to the world, Jeff, what's going on out there? So a fair bit, as you said, changing. So if I'm sitting in northern Sudan at the moment, am I going to get wheat delivered? Because of what's happening in Ukraine, for example. All, all these things you've got to take into consideration, I assume. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think the end, short answer on that one is no, you're not. That, that, that certainly has happened in in recent times. I mean, um, when the, the, the wheat supply got cut off out of Ukraine, that certainly had an impact on the livelihood. And I suspect in, in large measures that was also why how um, Russia managed to cement its relationships on the African continent, actually, because they were controlling those sorts of things. And at the end of the day, people like to eat. And if they don't eat, we're going to see revolutions, rebellions, etc., are we not? Well, exactly. They, they don't, they're not happy, that's for sure. And neither they should be necessarily. But 
No, look, there's a lot going on out there and, and there are a lot of moving parts and we do what we can do. With, we can't control a lot of those things, but we can certainly shift a few things around the board that will make people's lives better. You're seeing stuff that we should be mindful of in, in Australia? Oh, well, I think Australia's got, you know, it's it's in an interesting position right now, isn't it? And I, I don't want to be you know political about it, but we, we've got our work cut out here to, to keep the society in shape and to be able to live harmoniously together. I think one of the worst things that can happen here is if we start fighting amongst ourselves. I mean, and I, I think it's interesting with the COVID thing. Almost brought us all together. Well, I think it actually pulled ourselves apart, to be frank, because... I do. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I had the, the impression prior to COVID that we were a country. But in fact, what we were was part of states and everybody went off and did their own thing and, and did it in a way that was looking after their own backyard and be blowed to, to the other guy. And I, that, that to me was, was really disturbing. I think we're having conversations about other aspects of our society at the present time. But I think one debate that really should happen is whether it's such a grand idea being a federation or whether we shouldn't look at being a single country and, and eliminate some of those barriers and some of those opportunities for individuals to establish fiefdoms and to carry on in the way they did. Yeah, it was it when you're looking at it, wasn't it hindsight? Well, it was, you know. I mean, I, I was I, I flew into Brisbane from Africa at one stage of the game. I grew up in Queensland. Yep. I got met at the airport with blokes with automatic weapons and herded onto a bus and thrown into a hotel for two weeks without any ability to open a window in the hotel and treated as if I had uh, had committed some heinous crime. As I said to people, ex-murderers actually get an hour of exercise a day. I didn't even get that. But I just think the way that power was sort of pushed around and taken and in, in, in some instances abused without too much pushback from society here was a little bit disturbing because you can build a rationale around COVID, but that same ability is, is for any other cause that someone well, that comes was up with. concerning. What was more concerning, the lack of all the apathy of Australians to push back and say, what, what's going on here? Yeah, well... People... Even returning Australians back, remember, we were like... We gave that a hard time as well. Yeah. Sorry, you can stay where you are. We won't bring you home. Mm. Now, I guess the whole, you know, it's a different time and none of us had any clear vision as to what was going on or where it was heading to. But in hindsight, I think there are lessons there that can be learned. And I think in all of our, as we go about our business or our lives, I mean, we really should learn from our experiences. And that was an experience that I think should be debated in the broader broader forum. I agree with you. I agree with you. You're listening to the No Limitations podcast. Brought to you by Blenheim Partners. Blenheim Partners is an international board and executive search firm working with chairs, directors, CEOs and senior executives on their most critical people choices. For more information, visit BlenheimPartners.com. Some aspects about mining. FIFO. Good or bad? Yeah, it depends. It really depends on the circumstances. I mean, we operate a, a FIFO kind of situation and it, it has its benefits, but I think there are other aspects of it that would be better. I mean, it's difficult these days because uh, people want to give their kids maximum opportunities. They feel that in the remote areas where mines obviously are located, yep. it's not the same and all the rest of it. So it's a bit of a balancing act. There's good and bad about it. Uranium? I think the debate around uranium is stuck in about 30 years ago. I think it's about time some of the opponents of it sort of sat down and had a bit of a look at the technology. I'd be extremely surprised if the things that were concerning 30 years ago around safeguards and that haven't improved dramatically in the intervening period. I don't know if, you know, I'm not an expert in these things, but I think the opposition to uranium doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me when people are saying 
talking about energy intensity and greenhouse gases and all this sort of thing. I mean, there's a fairly easy solution, I would have thought. Yeah, exactly right. We won't have the debate. No, we won't. And I don't understand that. I really don't understand it because we should have, because it seems to me that given where Australia's positioned with uranium supplies, I mean, we're in a box seat if, if we ever go down that path. Now, someone yells out the word Chernobyl or Fukushima and, I, and, they, and it gets put to a, a close pretty quickly. Well, that's true, but those developments were based on technology that's quite old now and a lot of things have changed in the intervening period. So speaking of technology, autonomous, new technology, drones, etc., what are we anticipating or what are you predicting? Well, look, we, we use a lot of technology across our sites. You know, it's an interesting question because I've, I've had this discussion with people and, and my initial thought was, oh, no, we don't use technology, but when I thought about it, of course we use. Everything has got elements of high tech in, in it. We don't have autonomous trucks or trains or anything of that nature because that's not the business that we're in. But we certainly use high tech solutions to do a lot of our work. I mean, in fact, you know, one of the reasons why the Etikan mine has been turned around enormously in recent times is because we're applying a, a technology around our blasting that helps us to reduce dilution dramatically. It's having a really big effect. And so just by application of science, we've been able to be a whole lot more efficient in that particular area. Drones is another one. That's an obvious one. Correct. We use drones all the time. For, do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For surveying and things. Well, my technology team asked me to ask you around, what are you seeing or in, the, in your in your space, 3D printing? Well, I haven't, haven't come across that. Now, I know about it, but yep. I, I, we don't use that necessarily, no. Virtual augmented reality. I think there's a place for that, certainly in the training space, yeah. And in fact, um, you know, it's very, very good. I mean, we use um, like uh, simulators for truck drivers. Okay. And uh, it's quite extraordinary. You get into these things, you would swear to God, you're sitting in the cab of a Lincoln, you know, 100-ton truck, and you're able to change all of the conditions, the weather, the slope of the land, the this, that, and the other. And, you know, it's fabulous, absolutely, absolutely, to be able to train people. And in fact, what we do do is we don't just train our own people. We bring people in from the villages, put them into the simulator, and then they can go and work for somebody else if we can't give them a job. Autonomous drilling. Yeah, I think that's probably more something that happens in the underground space, whereas all of our things are open pits. So it's not such a big deal where, where we are. But I can see how if you can do it in a, in a manner that's going to be safer than manual work and things like that, you'd, you'd certainly be very interested in that, I should think. If you were going to give some advice to organisations who were looking to open up in Africa or countries which are building, what, what advice would you give? Well, I think just go in there and sit down and talk to people and don't go in there with preconceived ideas. I mean, you know, in Australia, people tend to have very, very wrong attitudes about Africa. They, they seem to think that it's in some way inferior and all the rest of it. I mean, Africa has got an enormous amount going for it. Its history has sort of held it back in some respects, but the people are as intelligent and fantastic. The mineral resources are, are great. And I think that a big mistake from Australians and certainly North Americans is going in there with preconceived ideas, thinking that their way is the best way or the only way. It's, it's not, you know, and there's a lot that we can, we can learn together. So, Jeff, the types of technology obviously must vary from mine site to mine site. So is it to the appropriateness of the site? Yeah, look, very much so, Greg. I mean, the mines that we operate, we, we'd like to think we could have 10-year-plus mine lives. If we look at, say, what BHP or Rio Tinto does, they have 50-year mine lives and things like that. So it's a very different set of circumstances, and I think the application of technologies and the investment that can be made in different settings is different. 
Another thing that I think is worth pointing out too is that in an African setting, if you if you talk to the the leaders of the countries, what they want to do more than anything is have full employment in their in their country. You know, life expectancy now is a lot longer than it used to be. There's a lot more people, and they're trying to get people engaged and and fully employed. So, coming into a mining venture and saying, "Well, we're going to fully automate the process," that will play like a lead balloon because it means that you're not employing people now. You you will get taxed through the eyeballs as a result. They won't miss out, but one of the things that, that we do is we, we do employ a lot of people and that is part of that social license thing. Now, there are tasks that you could probably do with less people and uh, and automate, but I think that in the social setting, in the social sense, it's better to go the other way. So it's a horses for courses situation. I think that where you can apply technology, you absolutely should in order to, to improve the efficiency of what you do. But you have to look at it in a totality, just not look at it as a, as a from a technical perspective per se. Hey, can I just ask you, if you know Africa better than most, where do you see the continent going and what are the stars? Which countries are the ones really leaping forward at a rapid rate? Well, you know, the first thing I'd say is, what is it, 52, 53, 54 different countries, depending on your definition. So yeah. I think one thing that we've observed is that a lot of the countries, they have a political cycle. They come and they go. So they go through good times, they go through bad times. And just because the country's having a... A rough trot doesn't mean to say it's always going to be like that. And I, I referred earlier to Cote d'Ivoire yeah. in our discussion. You know, ten years ago, well, man, it was a, it was a flaming wreck. But today, I think it's probably one of the leading countries on the continent in terms of GDP and things of that nature. So it's it's had a massive swing in in the space of ten ten years or so. Whereas you know, if you look at Ghana, as I said, I think I said earlier on, you know. Ghana was considered Africa for beginners uh, 10 years ago. I think they're going through some political challenges and economic challenges where, you know, they're having a bit of a struggle at the moment. So it's a very different place to what it was. And I think they come and go. I mean, so I wouldn't be putting my money on anybody to stay terrific forever. When we look at opportunities across the continent, we look at where the country is in its cycle and is there evidence that it's heading in the right direction. For instance, if you look at a place like Tanzania, yes, it went through a very dark period yeah, about four or five years ago. But yeah. the the new president there, from all accounts, is doing extremely well, yeah, and is starting to to change the the direction of that country. So that you know that has a bit of appeal as well. But um, yeah, look, it's very hard to award prizes and have them stick. You know what what applies this year and it won't necessarily be the case in th- in four or five years' time. And the effort on the social license or the effort on engaging with. The, the likes of the presidents or the chiefs, that's second to none, isn't it? It's pretty important to sort of be able to relate to people and to understand where they're coming from and have access, you know, in the event that you really need to, um, you really need to have some serious conversations along the way. Now, you know, we don't pitch ourselves at the president level that much, I have to say, mm-hmm. because it doesn't give you too much room for manoeuvring if you don't agree with what the president has to say. And so we tend to work a little bit down the tree from there. But we do have very good relationships in all the countries where we operate with at the ministerial level and at the bureaucratic level. And at the, the traditional leadership level, we try to foster that to the extent that we can as well. With all that, Jeff, is it actually safe? Yes, of course it is, Greg. It's as safe as anywhere. In the sense that, look, I could go out tonight here in Sydney and get myself into dreadful trouble, I'm sure, or Perth or anywhere else. And in Accra or, or, or Abidjan or, or Khartoum, I'm sure you could find some trouble if you were of a mind to do it. But by and large, it is safe. I've been going now for 10, 12, 13 years. I, I can honestly say I've, I've never put myself in a situation 
where I felt at risk. I go, actually, that's not quite right. I, we did find ourselves one day up in the bush, uh, surrounded by some artisanal miners who were wondering what we were doing. And we had a, a gendarme with us who was carrying an automatic weapon. And I was a bit concerned that he might let something go and then we'd be really in trouble. But that was the only time that I've ever felt unsafe. But no, look, the rest of the time, never felt threatened at all, ever. And and that goes to being out in the bush um, in the capital city, going, walking out from the, a restaurant at night, getting into your car after, you know, a couple of beers or something. Never yep. felt unsafe. And, you know, there's plenty of places around the world that are a whole lot worse. And well, we talked United States earlier, weren't we? Well, yes, they have their challenges. But, you know, it was funny, a couple of years ago, talking with the guys whose corporate offices were in London or in Paris. Yep. And they said to me at that stage, and this is when, you know, there was terrorism stuff going on up there. They felt safer in Abidjan and Accra, respectively, than they did in, in London and, and in Paris. So, you know, look, I think that it's got a bit of a bad rap. There are parts of Africa that are pretty diabolical. Certainly some parts in South Africa uh, are fairly wild at times and elsewhere. You will get yourself in trouble if you go looking for it. But, but by and large, that isn't the case. As far as the mining operations are concerned, we do invest in security. Yeah. We don't shy from that to make sure that all of our people do get safely home every day. Hey, Jeff, the plight of South Africa, it's troubled, isn't it? That would be my opinion, yes. I mean, I'm not a frequent visitor. I go there maybe once or twice a year, and I have seen it over 10 years slide back quite a long way from where it was at, and it does, does cause you to wonder where it's going to end up because it's not heading in a great direction in some parts. Jeff, if I was going to go on a holiday, where would you recommend well, look, I, I can't say I'm, I'm too expert in this, given that I haven't had too many holidays there myself, but I am told that places like Tanzania are wonderful. The national parks and things that are in that part of the world are still really, really fabulous, and there's a lot to see, uh, etc. And also, too, actually, one of our fellows just retired the other day and built a house on the edge of the Kruger National Park in South Africa, so he seems to be enjoying that as well. So, look, I understand there are fabulous places to go and visit, and you do the, the sort of the touristy thing. But, you know, I've had the most amazing set of experiences you could ever imagine doing my job over the last 10 years. I've seen things that no tourist would ever get to see. And I feel immensely privileged for having had that opportunity to be able to go and sit with people, talk to people out in the villages, see things, see them and doing what they do naturally. And I'm just in awe of the potential of that continent. Come on, tell us some examples. When I was in uh, Cote d'Ivoire the other day, we went out to a little village called Fimbiasso, where we, um, you know, just down the road from where we were doing some mining. And in fact, as it turned out, I had been there about five years ago, and I'd forgotten about that. And I'd sat down under the mango tree with the chief, and uh, we talked about various things. And when I say we talked about it, he talks his language, and I talk mine, and we translate. So it's not like a, a really intimate conversation, but we kind of got the messages across, and and we were. Wanting- and it's under the mango tree. Yeah, this is under the mango tree. Yeah, yeah. And I was trying to get him to agree to let us go and do some exploration. And he told me that he wanted a, his dam fixed up and all the rest of it. We said, right. yeah, no, well, if everything goes well, well, we'll do that. Anyway, fast forward five years and we're driving down the road. And I said to the guys, look, I want to go and have meet the chief in the village near where we're going to mine. And I'd forgotten that it, he was the fellow I'd sat with. And here we were, we were driving into, into the village. And it's like, God, it's all coming back. And he'd remembered because what they had done, knowing that I was coming to visit, set up this marvellous scene where they had everybody in the place was there and they turned it into a huge festival where there was dancing and singing and and all the rest of it. And and it was was pretty nice that actually they 
they uh, they brought all these gifts over, which was a bit embarrassing, particularly the the robes that they had me dress up in at the time and all oh, the really? rest of the stuff. And and they dragged this goat across the forecourt, and I thought, oh God, they're not going to cut its throat. Not not here, surely to God. But anyway, they didn't do that. But it was it was kind of fun. But the really gratifying piece for me was that I knew that that part of our plan was to start work on a dam the next week, and it was here, and, and this was the matter that had been brought up. And so I was able to say that, yes, we sat here five years ago, we talked about this, and that work is going to start next week. And I'm very pleased to say the work is actually ongoing right now, and the dam will be done fairly shortly. So that was really, really a, a great experience, and being able to see inside the way they, they work and think and celebrate and show respect around different ways. How do they make decisions, Jeff? Does the chief do a lot of consultation, or how does it work? Well, the chief is the king at the end of the day, and he has, they have, look, it varies, but they have a lot of elders and things like that. In Ghana, actually, our our, um, chairman over there is a paramount chief, and he runs his village, or it's his town and and district, in a really interesting way. He's he's actually a very well-educated man, but he, whereas in, say, if you went back four or five hundred years ago, and the paramount chief would sit and the chief from this village would look after weapons and this guy would look after tactics for the next war and this guy would look after prisoners and what have you, what have you. He has adopted the same model for his area, only now it's this man looks after education, this man looks after food, this man looks after something or other else. And so he's used the traditional model in a, in a modern setting, sits down and they have forum where people come and talk and he settles disputes and all this sort of business. And it really is quite interesting, and it is quite consultative, but at the end of the day, what the chief says goes. And it is interesting in the sense that it's a traditional society, and, and when, the let's say, the British in this instance left Ghana, they very deliberately depowered the power of the traditional leaders. So they, they made sure that in the constitution, the traditional leaders had no role. Right. But I can tell you that the moral authority of the traditional leaders is huge. In fact, it's probably more than what the elected officials have. Is that right? It is. It's, it's, it's massively important. And so in the context of our business, for us to overlook the importance of the traditional leaders in favour of the elected leaders would be a big mistake. You really need to have everybody participating and coming along on the journey. How are Australians seen? I think Australians are seen reasonably well, actually, you know, by and large, compared to, to some nationalities. I mean, one of the things we've had to do is to make sure our blokes don't smoke and swear because that doesn't go down too well. And that's a bit hard with Aussie, <laughs> you know, Aussie workers, I've got to tell you, uh, myself included from time to time. Not, not the smoking bit, but the swearing. <laughs> I've been known to drop the odd word here and there. But, uh, yeah, that doesn't go down at all well in, in, that, in that society. But, you see, that's, that's one of the things that I was saying about understanding some of these cultural nuances. I mean, they do things, too, that drive me crackers at times as well, but I need to roll with that. And we've got to be conscious of the things that we do so that we don't cause offence as well. Big question for you. Were you a good rugby coach? Oh, well, we won the premiership a few times. Maybe I had good players. Brought the best out of them, did you? Oh, well, I don't know. I think uh, they brought it out for themselves. I just helped them along the way. They gave you some pretty free advice along the way? Oh, they gave me plenty of advice along the way. Yeah, no, no, no problem with that. Hmm. What's next for Jeff? Well, that's a very good question. Look, I'm really enjoying doing what I'm doing at the present time, and I've still got a few goals to kick before I hang up the boots. But, uh, you know, my family have put up with me being away a lot over the years and things like that, and and I want to uh, have uh, quality time before my time's done. So there are things to do, and um, we'll get that done, and then we'll move on, I expect. If you're going to look back at the young guy living up in Tully, and the old man had a career in the bank, and you're starting off on yours... What advice would you give him now? 
Look, I think there's no substitute for hard work. And I think that there's also no substitute for sitting and listening to people and remembering that you don't know everything and that other people have opinions as well. And that there's a lot to learn along the way. And once you make a decision, get and do it and make sure you do what you say you're going to do. On that, Jeff, I thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 